Good evening. Welcome along to the Weekend Variety Wireless Saturday edition. This is Sunday one as well, if you didn't know. Same time, same channel, 8 till midnight Sunday night. I was really saddened to hear of the death of Anthony Bourdain. I rated the cat. I liked him a lot. Uh, the world's a worse place for him not in it. I'm going to miss his work. He never, ever diminished the high art and craft uh, that was his passion, and that is food. But at the same time, and this is a maybe the trickier thing and the thing which I really rated him highly for, not a pompous cell in his body. And he seemed like a decent guy. I'm going to miss him. It's tragic news. Anthony Bourdain dying yesterday at the age of 61. And what I reckon is the best intro to a food show ever, I've stuck up on the Facebook page. Go there, this lovely community of people. Have a look at it. It's the cage, one where he goes to Cajun country. It's beautiful. It's not really audio, so you go there and have a look. Later on this evening, the world of butterflies. There's a new exhibition on at the Auckland Museum. What is a butterfly? Entomologist John Early explains. It's not a simple question. Okay, also Grant Smithies is away, so I'm using the anniversary of Mrs. Robinson being number one in the charts 50 years ago at the same time of RFK's assassination, uh, Bobby Kennedy's assassination. It's, it probably coloured the tune for those that were around at the time. An interview with Paul Simon's biographer between 11 o'clock and 12. We have a bit of a cat fight as well. Threatens to slap me. This is, it's good. That's all good stuff. The intriguing world of Paul Simon between 11 and 12. Okay. Science this hour though. Uh, go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage for the full rundown, the schedule for this weekend. Uh, astronomy later this hour. Next up though. A uh, special guest, Martin Hanchik. Good heavens, it's a hard to spell uh, his surname. Uh, I, I won't bother doing it now. Um, but artificial life, what is it? Next up. A special science report this week, visiting guest, and on big thanks to Matthew Egbert of Auckland University for arranging this. Uh, he's Matthew's, as you probably know if you're a regular listener, is on our roster of science reporters, but it's a big fat show and tell today because a visiting guest we've managed to nab. Martin Hanchik um, is of the Laboratory of Artificial Biology. Whoa. Um, this is what is life, abiogenesis, how did it start, the theories. This is a big area where science really, well, it has no answer, but it may have some ideas. The Laboratory of Artificial Biology, I'd say, you know, cue thunderclaps and <laughs> it's alive, <laughs> lightning strikes. You're right. Thank, so, thank you, Graham, <laughs> for that introduction. Uh, so uh, Dr. Frankenstein is mm. with us, I suppose. Do you get that a lot? Do people think, because you're looking at artificial biology, that it's, ooh, you're Frankenstein? Um, I don't get that a lot because people are typically too polite to say it. But okay. I think they're, 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 they have it in their minds, and I do 
quite a bit of public outreach, talking to the public about the research that I do. Right. I think that's an important aspect. And sometimes someone is cheeky enough to say something about Dr. Well, Frankenstein. I, I, right. I just did it. <laughs> we just met. Fantastic. <laughs> oh, well, that's broken the ice. Um, I think it's... An important question, though, because it's a reflection of people's ideas about science. A lot of things yeah. in science, um, people say it's yuck, therefore it's bad. It's not. And, yeah. you know, yeah. anyway. It's, um, it is an issue. I mean, it is a serious issue because we have to think about the context in which we do our research. And if we're doing something new for the first time, mm. there could be uh, positive and negative aspects. And we need to think about those um, consistently through the research program. So are we creating something that is really bad Mm. say it very simply, this has to be addressed. You mm. have to ask yourself these questions. Mm. And, and what someone thinks bad is different to some, what somebody else thinks is bad. Right, right. And that's sometimes a tricky issue. But let's say you're creating something that could uh, make people unhappy, make mm. people sick, mm. right? Oh, well, yeah. Th these are obviously bad things, and you have to make choices in your, in your career to avoid such circumstances. All right. If you'd actually made something that crawled out of your lab, mm -mm. Uh, that would make headlines. I'd be so happy. You wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> what do you do at the lab? What does the lab do? So the laboratory for artificial biology is this idea that we are creating things in the lab. So we have a wet lab, you know, with chemicals and things like that, uh, where we're trying to create new technologies that have something to do with what we consider to be biology or life. So what that means is I can do an experiment in the lab, mix together some chemicals, produce something that we can look at that you say, hmm, that looks kind of like a living cell, right? right. That's superficially what, what we do. So there's a, there are varieties of flavors of these types of experiments that we do. And, um, and this is why I call it artificial biology, because it's not biology. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily restricted to what you would call a biological cell, like a cell in your body. Um, but it, it's, it's artificial. I, we make these artifacts in the lab. Okay. What about the folk that made a cell wall and then got a completely new DNA put it in it and made a new bacteria and went, ha-ha, we've created life? Yeah, sure. That's another approach. We, we don't deal with that aspect of research, but absolutely that is one of these um, I don't know uh, canonical experiments that shows you what can research do, what could technology do, and it's quite impressive, in fact, that they can get that far, yeah. right? Um, but uh, my research tends to be more simplistic. For example, I rarely touch DNA, almost never touch DNA, almost never touch proteins. The things you would say are, you know, the majority of the um, composition of living cells, I tend to steer away from those because I'm really pushing on this artificial aspect, something really different that I could produce in a lab that seems lifelike. Aha. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. I suppose a little like, albeit flawed, the, uh, the Turing um, experiment that if it looks like it, mm -hmm. you can't tell, mm -hmm. you know, it looks like everything that is um, uh, life, then, you know, why not call it that? I That's suppose. right. Yeah, so the Turing tests, it's been hypothesized that you could produce... Um, Basically, you subject these kinds of experiments to a Turing test and say, well, not, uh, maybe it's not the scientist or the human that decides if it's alive, right. but another kind of living cell begins to communicate with the artificial cell, let's say, and then decides somehow that it's alive. That's another way of, of doing the Turing test for these experimental systems. Because you've developed some uh, things... It's a technical term. Yeah, I think they uh, God damn, they do all these sort of lifelike things. Move around, right. Right. Gather, gather together, um, gather energy. 
Yes, that's right. So the basic experiments that we like to play with are basically mixing oil and water together like you would in your kitchen. And you know, when you do that, they don't, they don't, uh, they don't dissolve into each other. They remain distinct. So you can make oil droplets in water. That's no problem. And that typically, as in your kitchen, doesn't do anything for you. It's not animated. So what we want to do then is add something to the system, something special that then animates the droplets to start moving around, interacting with each other, and even sometimes dividing into, into more droplets. Mm -hmm. So this is the lifelike behavior, to be more concrete, this is the lifelike behavior that we are trying to explore in these experiments. And to be clear, this mm. isn't an attempt to find out how abiogenesis happened on Earth. Um, this is creating an analogue for how it may have happened in a different way. Is that right? It's yes and yes, in a way. Okay. <laughs> so first, first, we don't know, as you say, we just don't know how life started on, on this planet or elsewhere. And so we have to be speculative. And this is one speculative approach, um, making, let's say, a kind of simplistic matter that could behave like a living system that doesn't really resemble a living cell, but yet starts to do something similar to a living cell. So that's one. And the second one, yeah, we can make uh, in the lab something completely artificial. It's uh, like a, a different version of a cell that never, maybe never existed before, and we can explore the interesting properties of that as a new technology or something like this. Mm -hmm. Because in order, all life is made of cells. Yeah other than viruses, but then we can have a debate about mm. whether they're alive at all. Mm. Yeah. It's nice, it's a grey area, actually, mm. We like it? that in, yeah. the, in, in science, the grey areas. Um, so the, the cell has to uh, differentiate itself from its environment and create some sort of homeostasis. It's got to maintain itself. And your stuff does that. Yes. So we, um, it depends on how you define all these things, but maybe a, a general way of saying it is self-preservation. Okay, I think that many of the decisions that we make from day to day are about self-preservation of ourselves and our families and things. Um, it's kind of crazy to say, well, does a, a little pool of chemicals that we make in the lab, again, no DNA or anything like that, does that pool of chemicals act in a way uh, towards self-preservation? This is the big, one of the big questions we are working with. And there are some uh, um, answers we're getting out already. Like, for example, these blobs, these uh, little uh, oil droplets tend to move in order to preserve themselves over time. Hmm. So finding food, for example, is one of the activities we see. So it would take away a little of that great confounding mystery about oh, the utter unlikelihood of life ever starting on Earth, which is probably unlikely anyway, hmm. but maybe a little less if we can see other things behaving with a similar habit. Yeah, I think so. I think um, because the origin of life is such a mysterious um, area of, of research, really. I mean, where do you start? What's your approach? And there are so many different ways you could get at it. But the point is, um, to get any kind of clarity, you should get at it. You should start making things in the lab. And um, one thing is thinking about the systems, which is absolutely fine. The other thing is actually creating something new and testing it. What's happening there when you add chemical A and chemical B together? Mm. And if something starts to behave like a living cell, where you show it to, for example, a group of students, and they cannot tell the difference between living cells in one dish and your artificial blobs in another dish, I think you're getting somewhere. Yeah. Well, there were billions of years for um, various experiments, I suppose, mm. uh, random experiments uh, on Earth before life at all originated and there would have been a time when that was kind of kind of life but yeah. almost and and not right so this is a gray area as well so we can imagine there was a, a state of the planet earth where there was no life 
but they had stuff, right? There's matter, there's energy. And so how did this sort of come together to create something that is biology or, or life, which tends to be quite organized, right? It has this kind of organized structure to it. Mm. So how can you go from something that might be more or less random to something that is organized? So it's this gray area again. It's, a, it's like a transition from a chemical system, if you want to call it, a geochemical system, to a biological system. And again, in order to play with this gray area or this transition you need to get in there and start making some experiments mm. um it is a mystery a grand one it's something science doesn't know exactly how this life uh started on earth but there are a hell of a lot of arrows pointing in certain directions um creationists of course ignore all these arrows um yeah we don't know but there are arrows pointing in these directions aren't there there are yes yeah yeah so one of the you know, common, um, let's say, models or conceptions of the origin of life is that you had, um, without getting too technical, you started making some polymers that resemble biological polymers, which most of our bodies are made of these kinds of polymers. So these start to form just from chemistry, mm. right? They just happen in the right spot at the right time. They start to form these polymers. And then they self-assemble into something that has a membrane uh, surrounding it and has maybe some information in there in the form of DNA even, or, or the more common one is RNA, a version of DNA. Um, and this could occur spontaneously. And this gives us a really nice indication of a possible path forward from chemistry to biology because you can make... Um, from initial conditions that you define, so you know what you put into the experiment, you can make something that looks like a primitive version of a, of a biological cell, you know, with a membrane and, 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 and RNA inside. And so a lot of people are interested in pursuing this idea. So this is one of the mainstream ideas for the origin of life. One thing that is still confounding, even if we found that to yeah. be absolutely true and could be replicated, that would be an amazing yeah. thing. Yeah. There remains the question, why only one type of life? It seems as though it only happened once. Seems like it only happened once because it seems like all of the life that we know about, which is restricted to the planet Earth, has the same general architecture, doesn't it? Yeah. It has DNA proteins, has the same kind of polymers. Okay, so this is the... It looks like one origin, doesn't it? And it's is um, kind of... Uh, it's interesting because it's in, in the history of science, it's... it's, it's um, this one origin is flying in the face of this kind of spontaneous generation. You know, more than 150 years ago and, and before, people thought that life emerged all the time. When you see, you know, flies and, and worms coming out of the ground, it's just they had the right conditions in that situation to produce life from nothing. Right, Aristotle. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And then Pasteur came along and said, no, no, this is just, you know, this is life uh, uh, giving rise to more life. And that life doesn't spontaneously generate all the time. It just uh, happened once, really, if you yeah. really uh, protract that to the, to the past. But if, you, but if, if it's, um, we found uh, a planet just like Earth, where Mars is, um, we'd say, gosh, that is just so prime for life. Hmm. But it's only happened once. Mm -hmm. And let's say we take all the life off Earth, um, but it's Earth-like. We'd say, that's a great candidate. But we, we've had four billion years of that type of yeah. possibility for life to arise. Still, yet, only once as far as we know. As far as we know. Now, the question is, well, what are we looking for? Right, so uh, this asks, this is a very pertinent question for um, looking for life elsewhere. So maybe looking for life on Mars. Mm. If we send probes to Mars, what are they going to be probing for? 
Are they going to be looking for DNA? Because we think, of course, DNA is essential to life on this planet. Well, this is not clear to me what exactly you should be looking right, for. Right, this is what you're looking at. You're looking different but, ideas of what life is. Yeah, so by doing these kind of artificial biology experiments, we're kind of expanding our, our, our vision of what life could be made up of, how it could be composed, what could it do. And uh, this might inform um, our search for life elsewhere in the universe, perhaps. I mean, I'm, this is quite speculative, of course, yeah. but this is the idea behind it, right? But at least you're swatting away the prejudices which most people have that life has to be a cell with yeah. DNA. Yeah, and we all have prejudices. Um, and yeah. this is hard to get away from even as scientists. Uh, we have these all the time. But yeah, exactly. So um, thinking about it from a very broad point of view, maybe from the point of view of physics or point of view of chemistry and not so much of biology, yes, then we kind of open open the, the constraints for what biological, well, what life could look like, really. Mm. Yeah, could it be a droplet? Could it be uh, uh, some sort of solid crystal? I don't know. Could it be even a, even a technology that has no organic parts in it? Biology is chemistry, isn't it? Yeah, it's fundamentally chemistry and physics. That's right. But it's a substantiation of that. It's a particular kind of substantiation of, of chemistry and physics. Right? Yeah. yeah. A very special one, it seems. Yeah. Do you hold much hope for Mars? I know it's not really your lab's business, but you must think about it. We do this. think about it, and it's interesting to us to think about it because, again, it's, um, it's, it's all part of the same question, so we have to think about these things. Um, do I, hope, I don't have particular hope for finding life on Mars. No. That's right. And um, it, the way I think about it, and it's absolutely biased and absolutely flawed, but the way I think about it is that you could just imagine what life looks like on this planet if you're observing life. At any interface... So, you know, at the coastline or anywhere else where it's not like a desert or something, you find so much abundant life. It's basically looking right at you, looking back at you, mm. isn't it? So why don't we find... Even a limestone cliff wouldn't be there without life. Yeah. So, so why, when you go look at other planets, superficially look at other planets, why isn't life jumping around at you? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. It's all gone dead. We were snowball Earth once. That was close. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, could be all dead. So therefore, what you're looking for, that's interesting, because then what you're looking for are remnants of life. Yeah. That's a different question, in fact. Yeah, 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 it is. What is your lab doing at the moment that's exciting you? Oh, well, we have um, some projects related to the origin of life, and it has to do with these, making uh, oil droplets that behave like living cells, moving around and dividing and things mm. like this. And also, on the other hand, we're trying to understand from your sort of... That, that's the second perspective you presented as a just an analog of, of biology um, okay. and using this as a technology. Can we use it for something? So um, what we're doing with these moving droplets is we're transporting stuff around. So you could transport around conductive stuff to make uh, electric circuits. Uh, you can transport around biological cells to, to make the different kinds of biological examinations. So this is absolutely not related to the origins of life, but it's again, it's, it's trying to expand when you, it's interesting, when in the laboratory we have this really amazing opportunity to create something new. When you create that new thing, what do you do with it? So we like to then really explore all avenues of the interesting things we can do. So one, oh, we made a moving droplet, okay? We can talk about it in the, in the context of origins of life. But what else could we do with this moving droplet? That mm -hmm. might be different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a kinetic engine in one way, isn't it? It is. You've it got is. these things moving around, maintaining themselves, which yeah. are essentially 
I'll simplify it, oil droplets. Yeah, they're oil droplets that are little engines. And not only are they little engines, but they have uh, sensors on them, embedded in them, so they could sense their environment and make kind of make motion depending on what's in the environment. Is there food there, not food there? And they move directionally because of this. Thunderclap lightning. There you go. <gasps> it's alive. <laughs> right. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, I'll end on a really trivial note, and that is um, you could market it as salad dressing as well. Oh, I I would, Isn't that the same I would, stuff? I would love to do it. Yeah, and it's um, there is a there is an impetus in the lab to take what you would consider to be lab-only experiments yeah. and turn them into kitchen-accessible experiments. Absolutely, <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. Martin Hanchuk, thank you very much. Oh, where is your laboratory of artificial it's, biology? It's in the University of Trento in Italy. In Italy, beautiful Italy, yes. And uh, Matthew Egbert, who's been standing at the side, thank you so much for uh, bringing in Martin. And uh, next up. The World of Astronomy with Grant Christie. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. Hello, Grant. Hi, Graham. Okay, Juno is this thing that's visiting Jupiter, and just for fun, I think we can safely say, just for fun, they put a camera on it. Every little bit of weight counts, but they thought it was worth it just for fun. Well, uh, the public were outraged when they found that they were spending these hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever it is to send it there, and it didn't have a friggin' camera. Yeah. I <laughs> mean, <laughs> what <laughs> were they thinking? Measuring different stuff. <laughs> um, okay, but the camera is taking pictures, yeah. and, oh, my goodness, Jupiter is such a sight. There's a link to this picture on the Weekend Variety wireless webpage. Just go have a look. It's amazing. Yeah. All NASA are doing is they're taking the images from this pretty simple camera and just putting the making the raw images available and it's amateurs that are actually doing the pr image processing and bringing out all the fantastic details. Oh. Uh, the camera should have died by now. I think uh, we're well past its date when it was guaranteed to work. Mm. Now we're into the grey area so it could fail any time because it gets uh, degraded by the intense magnetic field around Jupiter. It's uh, very strong and uh, the spacecraft has hardened most of its main instruments, but I don't think the camera, they couldn't be bothered hardening the camera. Right. Does the magnetic field mean that Jupiter's got some iron core? All the details of, of the, how the core works, that's one of the missions trying to find right. out. It's trying to understand the interior of Jupiter. It's a, the, most of the pictures we're seeing on the outside, but it's actually probing the interior and trying to work out how big the core is, what the core could be made of, um, whether it's got metallic hydrogen, hydrogen that's so compressed that it behaves like a metal. That's uh, something that's uh, we've talked about it before, but mm. it's extremely hard to make in a laboratory, but Jupiter, most of Jupiter could be metallic hydrogen, mm. in which case most of the planetary mass in our solar system could be this stuff metallic hydrogen and it right. carries a current like a metal. You know, okay. there's a huge mysteries to be solved and we're hoping that Juno's going to deliver. Okay. Now, the space debris problem, I think this has become pretty well known in the public sphere that there's a lot of space junk out there and what can we do about it? Because we rely on these orbits for so much stuff. Everyone should know about it, but uh, it's a very common question that I get just talking to people casually, socially, that uh, they are kind of unaware of what the consequences of the space junk would be. Space junk is a serious issue and uh, there's all sorts of techniques being dreamed up to try to clean up space, but yeah. it, uh, the consequences are terrible for humanity. We could end up in a situation, if it's not brought under control, and we reduce the amount of debris flying around that's useless and can destroy satellites, yeah. and we could end up trapped on Earth. You know, the, the danger of going through that cloud of debris might be sufficient that you couldn't justify launching human beings into it. Get out! Yeah, seriously.
Wow. I mean, there's a cascading effect. Once you get a certain amount of space junk there, the mutual collisions, suddenly you end up with a runaway and you end up with a hell of a lot of huge burgeoning of the number of very small pieces, but those small pieces can kill and destroy. It's different if it's just an old satellite, but the trouble is that old satellite is going to collide with something and make huge numbers of little pieces, uh, which can tear through a spacecraft. Gosh, we're good at crapping in our own nest, aren't we? That's right. That's right. (laughs) This is a serious issue. Okay, and now this video, how to solve space debris problem, what are they showing us? Ah, well, there's different uh, techniques. There's the link on the webpage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's, uh, all sorts of clever techniques. Some of them are being tried at this very moment. Uh, Getting close to them and then using a harpoon, reeling them in. What you're wanting to do is to to capture these bits, and there are tens of thousands of them, slow them down enough that they drop into the atmosphere and burn up. Basically none of them are big enough to come through and crash into a city or something like that. They're nothing like that. These are all going to burn up in the atmosphere. The trouble is you've got to slow them down enough that their orbits decay and they fall into the atmosphere. All of these techniques are designed to try to do that. One of them is hit them with a harpoon that sort of produces a sort of a big, um, sort of very lightweight parachute. Uh, which increases its drag so that when it gets anywhere near the upper atmosphere, that drag hugely decelerates the object like a parachute to to slow down a plane, Mm -hmm. a jet plane that's landing or something like that. So that's basically they're all intended to come up with some way to push these bits of trash into the atmosphere and burn Mm. it up. All right, let's go to Botswana. This asteroid exploded over Botswana, and did we have the ticket to the show we knew when it was going to start, did we? Ah, well, it was recorded with various security cameras, so we, it was known when it was going to happen. It was actually was predicted. It was discovered only seven hours before it hit the Earth. Well, that's quick work. Now, having said that, the object itself is estimated between sort of about two and about four metres in diameter a bit uncertain but it was traveling about 17 when it hit the earth it was traveling at 17 kilometers per second so you know you imagine sort of your neighborhood uh, 17 kilometers and you boom it's uh, that's pretty quick and so uh, it hit the atmosphere and produced a pretty strong fireball which uh, disintegrated and so far they haven't found any pieces from it but uh, part of that is working out where the debris field would have landed now in Botswana I think that the the most of the terrain there is is very lightly vegetated so you'd uh, have a reasonable chance of finding bits if it was over like a rainforest or something you're just not going to find anything but or the sea so, good luck or the most of them go into the, or the bits fall into the sea that's correct but having seen it burn up over land they know to go and look and we had the one over um, sort of North Africa um, and uh, yeah. yes, that's right. And they managed to find uh, oh, decent uh, about ten kilos of stuff from that by just getting students lined up and walking across the desert looking for bits because cool. they knew basically where it landed. So what they're trying to do now with this one is work out from its trajectory and analysing these little video bits of clips of video, try to work out where that debris would have gone. So mm. they they don't end up trying to cover all of Botswana. They only look for where the debris could possibly have landed. So mm-hmm. this is only the third case of a asteroid that was known before it hit the earth and then see it hit the earth they estimate this is happening every day so here we've had three in the last few decades these sort of scale events relatively small big boulders most of them blow up over the ocean and aren't seen they aren't seen in advance this is an apollo what's called an apollo class asteroid which means it's uh, potentially hazardous for earth it's an 
in the Apollos are in orbits that sort of cross the Earth's orbit and can potentially collide. This was a baby one, so we're not too, I mean, it's not life-threatening. Okay. You know, there are others out there that haven't been found that are much bigger. I've seen a bolide enter the atmosphere. I was just so lucky to be looking in the right direction at the right time, at the right time of night. I was in a van yeah. driving from Dunedin to Christchurch and it was it seemed like it was just over that hill. That's right. But it must have been way, way Yeah, hundreds of kilometers beyond. They do look close. It's you can't you've got no perception of the distance and uh, they look like a skyrocket just over the next yeah. hill. That's exactly right. And so in fact bright meteors when the time you're seeing them burning up they're like sort of 80 90 kilometers away minimum i can't recall exactly what colors but red was definitely there it looked red and maybe green what elements they're made of of course if you burn copper if there's any copper in it, it'll go green color and all these different elements when they start to incinerate in the atmosphere at high temperature then they produce their natural colors and that's what's producing them so a spacecraft which is made of lots of different metal parts if if there's a lot of colors coming off and the thing's falling apart it's probably a entry spacecraft ah. not a, a, a meteorite or an asteroid is, is much denser than a spacecraft it's a spacecraft empty air right, I mean right. just it, well, empty stuff inside they're just a tin can with stuff mm. inside them but the uh, a rock is something different and it, the range of elements in a rock is a lot less than what would be in a modern spacecraft. So what I saw it, was, it seemed impressive, and uh, but it probably a bit of space junk to be that It could have been I mean you know it's and also space junk tends to be going slower when it hits the atmosphere, then uh-huh. then at, uh, right. an asteroid coming in. Okay. It was ages ago, folks. It wasn't just yesterday. Decades ago. All right. Uh, globular clusters, 4 billion, oopsie, 4 billion years younger than previously thought. And this is a paper from, uh, with some New Zealand influence, J.J. Eldridge. Yes. Uh, Dr. J.J. Eldridge is one of the leaders in the field of... Um, he's at the University of Auckland uh, and did his PhD originally at Cambridge and has been in New Zealand now about four or five years. Mm. Um, but uh, he collaborates with uh, Elizabeth Stanway from uh, University of Warwick and the t- between the two of them they've actually made huge advances in understanding of how whole populations of stars evolve and what they should look like when you see them from a great distance through a telescope. So basically, you know, we can look at our own galaxy and we see the individual stars, but when you're looking at things that are billions of light years away, then you're only seeing one single blob of light. So they're trying to understand the spectrum of that light in terms of what it says about the population of stars it's producing. And even though you're not seeing the stars individually, you're seeing their total average effect of them. Globular clusters are, 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 I mean, the Milky Way's got possibly about 150 or something in that order. Not all of them are known because some of them will be on the other side of the galaxy where we can't see them. They're hidden from our view at the moment. But these are thought to have been the sort of amongst the superclusters that formed when the galaxy first formed, which puts them at like 12 billion years old, 11, 12, that sort of range. Mm-hmm. But what Elizabeth Stanway and J.J. Eldridge are saying is that their, their computer simulations show very clearly uh, that, in fact, they really could easily be you know, a lot younger. Um, and the, the reason for the discrepancy is that their models are the first ones that take account of binary stars. So <laughs> our sun is a single star, but in fact most of the stars in our galaxy are pairs or triples or something like that. And many of those evolve over their lifetimes by exchanging material one to the other. 
they're close enough that they can exchange. So that changes hugely the way these stars go through their lives. They can drag in material from their companion star, for example, and suddenly get rejuvenated and look a lot younger than they really are. So there's all sorts of complex interchange with binary stars that our sun doesn't have. Our sun is sort of an isolated one. We know what the sun's going to do, but if it had a binary companion, it would be much more difficult to predict. Right, so these stars are a bit like Keith Richards getting a blood transplant after a heavy night out. Well, exactly how well you put that, Graham. So some of these stars, when I say binary stars, some of them are so close that they're actually touching and share their same atmosphere. Oh, so they yeah. look like a, a peanut, basically, with ah. two lobes. Others are further apart. Alpha Centauri, the closest star to our system to our sun, is two stars about the mass of the sun separated by about the distance from the sun to Neptune. Oh, okay. So if you made Neptune into another sun, that's yeah. something like what you're talking about for Alpha Centauri. Now, those two stars are so far apart that they'll go through their lives fairly independently and not interact. But if those two stars were sort of close as, say, the Sun and Mercury, that would be a different, and even closer, where they, they could actually start exchanging material. Then the way they evolve in the future would be different. And so that's really what their models are taking account of, that nobody's taken account of that before. No. And it's a very important thing that uh, um, astronomers have looked at these distant clusters and just sort of been thinking, stuck in this sort of routine of thinking, well, you know, this is, a, you know, we know what single stars do, but in fact, when you take account of the lives of the binary stars, it changes the game a lot. Now, the theory of the alien apocalypse, it's part of the Drake equation, isn't it? Can civilizations even make it through? Are they too energy expensive uh, <laughs> in order to carry on? Well, that's right. Uh, it's a very interesting uh, sort of analysis, this one, and it reminds me of the book uh, by Tim Flannery, The Future Eaters, that came out in the early 1990s about Australia and what is the, ca the human carrying capacity of Australia. And Tim Flannery argued at that time that the human carrying capacity of Australia, based on inputs like rainfall and sustainable agriculture and everything else was in the order of two million people and in fact it's way above that and so you know is Australia for example way over the limit the classic case was the uh, Polynesian when they got to uh, Rapa Nui yeah. uh, Easter Island everything was great plenty of food chop all the trees down do mm. whatever you like um, but you know it all came to a grinding halt when suddenly they were trapped on a place and the, all resources were destroyed mm. um, and you know the, this has been the sort of pattern for humans uh, modifying the environment and they're arguing in this sort of analysis that one of the reasons we might not have heard from other alien civilizations that they're running into the same brick wall that humanity's in danger of running into mm. right now in other words simply changing their environment to such an extent that you destabilise the climate and you know, render a large amount of agriculture um, possible and then suddenly you have a big collapse of your population. Mm. And uh, civilization would cease to be worrying about sending space telescopes up. They'd be more worried about you know, where the next feed was coming from. Yeah, the climate change thing is... Uh, Paleontologists are good to talk about climate change because they have done great study into what it was like last time all that carbon dioxide was out yes and bloody not pretty anyway okay we won't scare the children yeah the serious issues assume the position maybe oh, okay um we won't scare the children nasa's new horizons probe it woke up for its next deep space flyby now this where is it now new horizons well it flew by pluto yeah and took all those wonderful pictures that we still enjoy today and they're still analyzing the bonanza of material they got from that flyby and then they found another object that it could head to because they knew they, they couldn't change its direction much because they didn't have enough fuel but they could redirect a little bit and so they carried out a search 
in the direction it was going uh, and managed to find an asteroid out there, or way out in what's called the Kuiper Belt, way beyond Pluto, of course. So now they're closing in on that asteroid. It's about, you know, probably less than 50 kilometres across. It's mm. a small body, much smaller than Pluto. It's a little, just a, an asteroid, it won't even be round. It's going to fly by on the 1st of January. So they know where it is, they know how fast the spacecraft's going, and now they've just woken it up, they've had it in hibernation to save power and to give the guys who, uh, the team that run the, the project a bit of time off to relax, and now it's all starting to get going again. If um, you think maths is hard, and most people do, God, try and figure out that. You yeah. Find the asteroid and now get this thing to line up. That's right. And uh, they've got to fly close to it because, of course, it's even further away from Pluto, so it'll have the sunlight's going to, shining on it. It's going to be even uh, less. Uh. Um, and so they want to get as close to the thing. They don't want to hit it, of course. <laughs> that, <laughs> that would be a bad hit hey, for the team. Yeah. But they want to get close enough to it. And with Pluto, the danger was was the dust belts around. And uh. Pluto had five known moons by the time the New Horizons was by. They didn't want to hit those. They didn't want to run into a dust belt, which would damage the spacecraft. But in this case, it's extremely unlikely that such a small body would have this. So they can cut it a bit finer, I think. Mm. So by mid-August, they're going to be sort of making um, final little tweaks, lining it up. The camera work, I say, is going to be challenging because the light's very low and they'll be trying to image something that's pretty dark against the bright starry background. That's Mm. another complication. So it's just something to look forward to. There's going to be more updates. Um, It's currently about five billion kilometres away and it's taking 12 hours for the radio signals travelling at the speed of light to get back to it. Is it 12 light hours away? 12 light hours away now. That's not bad going, is it? Far out. And it's, uh, I think it's still the fastest moving spacecraft uh, that Okay. Produced. I'm impressed we're going to have an event so early. I thought we'd be waiting like 100 years for it to run into something else. No, this is amazing. No, well, and, and in fact, once it's finished this one, I don't know if they've got any plans for it after that. It just depends how much NASA's prepared to spend to keep right. it going on but the the time to the next one they keep getting longer and longer and longer i think mm. uh, so uh, and i don't think they've know of anything beyond this one so this will be a, a one-shot one uh am i out of line but there was non-news this week saying that uh, the earth's day is getting longer we've known this for a long time isn't the tidal effect is long yes uh, yes it's been known for a long time that the uh, a the moon's moving away from the earth uh, it was known from physics that it had to be and the reason for that is that there's as the earth turns there's a tide bulge that travels around the Earth that's always pulled towards the moon. So as the Earth is rotating every 24 hours, it's rotating underneath this bulge in the ocean that's caused by the moon. The dragging effectively effect of that tidal bulge going around the Earth causes friction, particularly between the shallow seas. So in the deep ocean it has less effect, but in the shallow seas there is a, an energy loss due to friction between the water being dragged over the shallow the seabed. And so that's been known for a long time. That What that does, that frictional breaking, means that that's causing the Earth's rotational speed to... Mm-hmm decrease just a bit very slowly very slowly i mean we're talking sort of a very long eons of time mm. but over millions of years it adds up and because the earth is turning slower the moon has to move further away to conserve the angular momentum as a fundamental principle it's just laws of physics applying here did newton get that right well he understood about the conservation of angular momentum okay. and uh, his laws of gravity and so on don't know if he actually did do the sums with the sun, with the the moon okay. I, I don't think he did that but um they didn't really have any good handle on any of those numbers, but they do now, and it's been known for a long time. So basically the moon is moving away, so when the Apollo astronauts went to the moon, 
Um, they knew that, that the moon was actually moving away very, very slowly from the Earth. Um, wouldn't affect their landing, of course. <laughs> Oops, we missed it. That Come back here. But what they did leave on the surface of the moon were three laser reflectors. So at Apollo 11, I think Apollo 12, and uh, one other one. They left these little disks on the surface that you could bounce a laser off. And so from Earth you can send a laser beam out through a telescope and aim it close to that point and if you move it around a little bit until you hit that little plate you get a reflection back and from the bouncing a laser off the moon you can work out the distance of the moon extremely accurately I mean sort of centimeters mm. um, and having three of them they can then actually work out extra things like the wobble of the moon essentially having those laser reflectors there they've been able to measure very precisely the rate at which the moon is moving away from the earth so there was nothing new about the fact that the moon is uh, moving away from us but what was interesting and we talked about a few weeks ago was the lining up of the data of the climate from fossil records a billion years ago half a billion years ago looking at the time of day there you find that these two things have to sort of kind of match up so the, we understand why the moon's moving away from us and it's also the earth's orbit is being influenced by venus and jupiter together mm. those two planets interacting through gravity with the earth actually changes the earth orbit in a predictable way and some of that work's done here you know from stratigraphy by paleontologists here in new zealand so it's, it's actually marrying up all these different lines of approach. So geologists looking at rock beds and Grand Canyon and all these sort of places around the world where you can see large eons of time exposing the rocks and you can look at the life that's in those rocks and uh, measure things about it. Um, you can even measure the, time, the length of day and stuff. Amazing mm -hmm. what they can extract from that. Lining it up with the astronomy is the, uh, is the key thing. And I think this was just a different group who had been studying the stuff and they basically come out with about the same sort mm -hmm. of stuff confirming what's been done. So it wasn't a specifically a, a new revelation that the moon was moving away. We've known that for a very long time. Mm. Um, and we've known how fast. It's, it's moving away about the same speed your fingernails grow okay which but is uh, commonly we, used we analogy. can extrapolate back that it was closer and closer and closer yes. but if you go back in time far enough does it hit the earth i mean what the hell well the theory is and it's still with you know it keeps changing yeah. but basically the scenario is some protoplanetary body collided with the earth and created a major collision and out of the debris of that collision earth sort of recovered yeah. itself but material went into a sort of a dusty ring around the Earth and gradually congealed and formed moons. So but how close was that moon when it congealed, let's say, got round? I think the day was about six hours at that stage. Good I mean, the, so the, the Earth was spinning faster at that stage. That's my understanding, is that it was... So over that sort of four billion years, the speed of the Earth has slowed down as the moon's gone away. That's the primary thing that's slowing the Earth down, is the fact that once you had these oceans and you had the friction breaking caused by the tidal bulge, if, if the moon wasn't there, then the Earth wouldn't have been slowing down because there would have been no tidal bulge. Right. So this creation of the formation of the moon that started to produce that. But, of course, when you think about that, if, you know, if your day's only six hours long and you've got a tide coming in and out every six hours. Oh, but what and sort the tide, of tide? Well, the tide would have been enormously high. It would have been Hollywood tidal Absolutely. wave over I mean, New the, York the, City the, stuff. And the, you don't hear that sort of talk about it. I mean, the, first of all, you know, the tidal bulge, we get sort of a few metres, maybe more in a few places mm. on Earth, but basically in, it's in, in order of metres, but it would have been 100 times higher than that 
and having a tide sloshing way inland every out, three hours every few hours would have been enormously uh, enormously erosive uh, and ground down the land surfaces pretty quickly you know, we, know, we know how erosion caused by tides is a fairly slow gentle process but the earth's sixth day is about six hours the tide once every three it's hundreds of meters high yeah, not yeah. much respite yeah, is there? yeah so i don't know if they know enough about the very early times yeah. they haven't really come up with a, a watertight story on the yeah. formation of the moon it's related to an impact a, a major impact yeah. of some sort exactly how the moon formed out of, from the result of that impact is still pretty blurry i mean right. there's a number of different theories we've talked about in the past yeah but when depicting the early earth you very rarely you see, don't see the, that you the see moon close in the 100 meter ball of water coming in. That's right, and I'm not sure how long, I mean, somebody must have worked it out. I, I, I must see if I can do some research and find out, you know, what the tide height and the tide frequency would have been as a function of time. Right. That would be an interesting thing to look at. Grant Christie, fascinating stuff as always, and the relevant links up on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Beautiful. Jupiter and how much space junk is up there and the problems it's causing and what we can do about it. Cheers, Grant. Here we go. Good seeing New sport weather coming up. Uh, no spoilers during the program if you're interested in a rugby match. Uh, but we're a news organisation, so uh, you've been warned. It's 9 o'clock. Good evening.